This is day two of this January 2021 seven-day online Rohatsu Sashin. <clears throat> and we'll return to uh, Zen Master Hakuen You know, what, what, what we just recited together, his, uh, his chant in, in praise of Zazen, it'd be hard to find a more complete and eloquent summation or sort of synopsis of the Zen school. <clears throat> short, that is. Short. When I was uh, on a pilgrimage uh, to Nepal, Many years ago, my uh, traveling companion at the time, who I met in Kathmandu, uh, had had the foresight to uh, make copies of this Hakuan chant, um, knowing that uh, in places like Nepal or other countries, uh, the word Zen would be meaningless to a lot of people, and if if uh, he was asked about it, uh, then he could, uh, if he felt it was appropriate, he could give him a copy of the Hakuan chant as a, a good summation of uh, our, the school of Zen, our Chan. And uh, I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's just hard to beat as far as a short uh, summary of the, the principles of Zen. Well, now we're going back to the book we were using yesterday, the main book, uh, was called Wild Ivy and uh, the Spiritual Autobiography of Zen Master Hakuen. Uh, and the whole book is his autobiography except for the introduction by the translator, uh, which is includes uh, a biography that is, uh, leaving aside Hakuen's own words, a much shorter outline of Hakuin's life. And that's what... Uh, uh, I won't read much more of this book than the introduction, but uh, before going on to Hakuin's teachings in his own words, I want to finish this uh, biography by the translator. <clears throat> uh, I'm going to skip just for a moment. I'm going to skip to the end of the introduction and um, and read the the, the translator uh, had the uh, common sense or the the wisdom to want to offer us um, more uh, personal or more uh, textured um, presentation of Hakuen and his. His, his personality. <clears throat> um, so many of these, uh, the, the biographies of these great Chinese and Japanese and Korean masters are really hagiographies. They're, they're, they're tributes. Uh, and uh, we have to assume that they leave out um, some, some details, including some of the master's blind spots, his, his flaws, his um, 
still remaining afflictions uh, in order to what they would see as give full tribute to the master. Uh, so without f further comment, here's uh, again reading from uh, Norman Waddell's introduction. Uh, he says, Torre, Torre was Hakuin's Dharma successor. Torre described Hakuin as having, quote, the heavy, deliberate motions of an ox and the penetrating glare of a ferocious tiger. <clears throat> this, uh, the translator writes, this portrayal uh, is confirmed by life-size effigy statue of the, by the life-size effigy statue of the master. Um, he was a large, imposing figure of a man in whom were combined great physical strength and a dominating character distinguished by extraordinary determination and uncompromising independence. I can't help but think of uh, some of the very rough outlines of uh, Bodhidharma's character. But then here... <clears throat> Uh, he was, of course, not all strictness and severity, however. Glimpses of a less daunting, more human Hakuin can be seen in some of the supplementary notes Torre added to his biography of Hakuin, which contain anecdotes about his teacher's habits and foibles that enable us to gain a fuller picture of his overall personality. <clears throat> he was, for example... In, inordinately fond of sweets. Can you imagine that in a, in a Zen teacher? This weakness must have been well known in Zen circles, for Torre said that when he arrived at Hakuin's temple for his first meeting with the master, he took as a gift a bag of sugared goodies he had picked up along the way. Hakuin was also extremely fond of soba noodles, and when the temple cook began preparing todo rojiru, a dish made from pulverized mountain yam, we are told, quote, these are Torre's words, the mere sound of the pestle grinding the yam was enough to make the master's mouth water and his eyes narrow with anticipation. <clears throat> Also, like most Japanese monks, he enjoyed drinking sake. The uh, Torre's biography tells of an incident in his mid-twenties when uh, he stopped off to have a, a, a few last cups of sake, sake, of course, is rice wine, before entering a temple to begin a rigorous practice session. According to this other historian, though, uh, Hakuin allowed no sake in the temple during his first ten years as the head monk. Later on, however, he drank moderately, saying it was for medicinal purposes only. He also had a pipe habit, dating back at least to his mid-twenties, that is, smoking a pipe. I'm not sure how well anyone can hear me, so... Pipe, P-I-P-E. Um, at one point, troubled by the notion that his smoking might violate the Buddhist precepts, 
he decided to swear off. Taking out his tobacco pouch and his pipe, he threw them into a rice paddy and then, as if to sever all remaining ties to the articles, poked them down with his staff until they were deeply buried in the mud. Again, he resumed the habit later on in life, this time saying it helped him to, quote, relax from the demands of his teaching duties. And then Torre, uh, who was known for his, his own strict adherence to the precepts, wrote how he would sometimes enter Hakuin's chambers and catch the master hastily concealing his still smoking pipe behind his back. <laughs> this is what we need. We need uh, about to, to read about more Zen masters than just their fearsome spirit and courage and determination and unyielding uh, perseverance. These were human beings, but we don't get much of that from these biographies that are centuries and centuries old and have been cleaned up. Well, I want to just get in this, uh, this, this human stuff uh, about more human details about Hakuin before going back to where we left off yesterday, which is uh, where he had had his first enlightenment at the sound of a temple bell at age 24. And then he went swaggering around with a great deal of pride, um, swall- these are the words that uh, that Hakuin used later, swallowing whole everyone he encountered, regarding them contemptuously as so many lumps of dirt. But then he he met his primary teacher, uh, Shoju Rojin. <clears throat> and a little bit here about Shoju because he was uh, the most important teacher to Hakuin. Uh, in Hakuin's writings, Shoju comes across as something of a maverick. It's, uh, Roshi Kaplow was sometimes called a maverick. Living by choice in a tiny hermitage in an extremely isolated corner of the country, Shoju would have been totally outside the mainstream Zen world. He accepted few students and only those who convinced him they were totally dedicated and possessed the capacity to mature into genuine teachers themselves. To those students, Shoju was a fierce, uncompromising taskmaster whose methods were harsh in the extreme. <clears throat> Hakuin was with Shoju for only eight months, but it is clear in reading his accounts of the period that they were the most important of his life. Hakuin said that until he met Shoju, he had believed it relatively easy to achieve religious attainment. But then Shoju's relentless hounding soon cleared his mind of that notion, crushed it like an eggshell, Hakuin wrote. And then here, I'm going 
back to the main body of the book, the, that is Hakuin's own words, the autobiography, to just expand on his meeting with Shoju. He said, and this is the, again his own words, uh, I received permission to be admitted as a student, then hung up my traveling staff to stay. Once, after I had set forth my understanding to the master during Doksan, he said to me, Commitment to the practice of Zen must be genuine. How do you understand the koan about the dog and Buddha nature? Mu, of course. Hakuin replied, I'll keep it in the first person. These are his words. I replied, no way to land a hand or foot on that. He abruptly, that's his shoju, he abruptly reached out and caught my nose. Giving giving it a sharp push with his hand, he said, got a pretty good hand on it there. Then back to Hakuan, I couldn't make a single move, either forward or backward. I was unable to spit out a single syllable. That encounter put me into a very troubled state. I was totally frustrated and demoralized. I sat red-eyed and miserable, my cheeks burning from the constant tears. And then he says, the master took pity on me and assigned me some koans. (laughs) If that's pity assigned me some koans to work on, and it lists a bunch of koans, most of which are in the collection we work on. Um, And here, too, I'm going to expand on... um, Well, just go on. Uh, I chewed on those koans day and night, attacking them from the front, gnawing at them from the sides but not the first glimmer of understanding came. Does that sound familiar to anyone working on a koan? So then he he got enough of shoju, he thought, and uh, he set off with his begging bowl to go somewhere else. And here is this another, in his own words, I was totally absorbed in my koan, never away from it for an instant. I took up a position beside the gate of a house, my bowl in my hand, fixed in a kind of trance. Fixed in a kind of trance. Now, here, let me pause and point out that we would would call this a kind of state of no-mindedness. Samadhi. And it, it, it is different from mindfulness. No mindedness or samadhi, <clears throat> one form of it is to be, uh, feel as if you're kind of in a dream or in a trance, as he says. But to continue, from inside the house, a voice yelled out, Get away from here. Go somewhere else. I was so preoccupied, I didn't even notice it. Uh, again, let me pause. There's a, there's a saying from ancient China. Uh, One who is working on Mu does not see the sky 
when she raises her head, nor the ground when she lowers her head. I mention this because uh, people sometimes think, right, I, if I'm really mindful, if I'm really aware, then I'll hear everything. Um, yeah, that's mindfulness. Uh, hearing everything, smelling, tasting, and so forth. But again, there are these states of deep absorption where we don't. And it's not that one is is right and the other is wrong. There are times when we can be uh, extremely concentrated on a koan while hearing everything. And then there's this other state one can get in. The best thing is not to think about uh, reaching either state. I was so preoccupied I didn't even notice it. This must have angered the occupant because suddenly she appeared flourishing a broom upside down in her hands. She flew at me, flailing wildly, whacking away at my head as if she were bent on dashing my brains out. My hat lay in tatters. I was knocked over and ended heels up on the ground, totally unconscious. I lay there like a dead man. Neighbors, he, he writes that the neighbors were alarmed by all the noise and came out and, oh, now look at what the crazy old crone has done, they cried, and then they disappeared. And then he, he continues, this was followed by a hushed silence, not a stir or sign of life anywhere. A few people who happened to be passing by approached me in wonderment. They grabbed hold of me and hoisted me upright. What's wrong? What happened? They exclaimed. As I came to and my eyes opened, I found that the unsolvable and impenetrable koans I had been working on, all those venomous cat's paws, were now penetrated completely, right to their roots. They had suddenly ceased to exist. I began clapping my hands and whooping with glee, frightening the people who had gathered around to help me. He's lost his mind. A crazy monk, they shouted, shrinking back from me apprehensively. Then they turned heel and fled without looking back. I picked myself up on the ground, straightened my robe, and fixed the remnants of my hat back on my head. With a blissful smile on my face, I started slowly and exultantly making my way back to Shouju An. That's the, the master, uh, Shouju, who he thought he was leaving. I spotted an old man beckoning to me. Honorable monk, he said, addressing me. That old lady really put your lights out, didn't she? I smiled faintly, but uttered not a word in response. He gave me a bowl of rice to eat and sent me on my way. I reached the gate of Shoju's hermitage with a broad grin on my face. The master was standing on the veranda. He took one look at me and said, 
Something good has happened to you. Try to tell me about it. Notice that try. Because with any deep experience, and I don't mean just enlightenment, with any really, uh, any experience that leaves us shaken, it's, it is difficult to find the words. I walked up to where he was standing and proceeded to explain at some length about, my real, about the realization I experienced. He took his fan and stroked my back with it. I sincerely hope you live to be my age, he said. You must firmly resolve you will never be satisfied with trifling gains. Now you must devote your efforts to post-satori training. So, so you see, just on the verge of leaving, actually after having left, on his way to parts unknown, this experience happened to him, brought him back uh, to Shoju. We'll continue with the translator's introduction, uh, introduction, his biography. By winter, Hakuin says he had succeeded in penetrating the heart of Shoju Zen. Let me just pause and pose the question. What would that heart be? We, uh, we chant the Prajnaparamita, the, the heart of perfect wisdom. What about that heart? Shoju urged him to stay on as his successor, but Hakuin refused the request, and in late autumn, uh, he returned to his home temple. <clears throat> and the translator uh, offers, speculates as to why that was, that he didn't stay, but uh, it's, it's, we don't have time to get into that. Now, moving along, uh, now, age 24, uh, the translator calls this his post-Satori practice. Now, it gets interesting. During the travels that followed his return to his home temple, he beca it became clear to Hakuin that his attainment was still incomplete. He had no doubts about the depth of his enlightenment. He was sure that his grasp of koans and Zen writings was sharp and clear, Yet he found it impossible to sustain the tranquility he experienced in the quietness of the Zendo when he returned to the tumult of everyday life. And this is what, what he said to himself. I feel like a physician who possesses a wonderful knowledge of medicine, but has no effective means of curing an actual sickness, he lamented. 
How can I possibly hope to help rid other sentient beings of their afflictions as long as I still suffer from illness myself? With renewed determination, he now, quote, grasped the whip in hand and spurred the dead ox forward once again. And then the, com- the translator summarizes the focus of his post satori training was directed henceforth to achieving the total integration of the two aspects of his life the quiet and the active and this goes right to the the, the long term challenge we all have before us is to integrate what what we might the state condition of the mind during sitting and our mind as we're going about our daily activities this is the this is the real the white water rapids of of zen practice it's it's one thing to be able to reach this stillness while we're sitting but then to ex- be able to extend that work it into one's daily life. So in everything we're doing, all of our responses to other people and to changing circumstances and conditions, we can maintain this mind of stabilized awareness. That is the work of a lifetime in, 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 in terms of perfecting it. Lifetimes. Now I see that uh, this biography by the translator is going on and I'm going to just hit some highlights. next in this chronology uh, was that Hakuin came down with uh, a what he called Zen sickness or meditation sickness the translator writes although the exact nature of the disorder is not known from the description he gives of its symptoms modern writers have diagnosed it variously as tuberculosis pleurisy nervous collapse, or some combination of the three. I have to say that uh, now, just from in my own experience, I've never encountered someone who, uh, certainly not I, but no one I know of uh, in Zen who has experienced this kind of, as, as it's described, Whatever it was, it finally became so serious that it prevented him from pursuing his Zen training. And then he makes a whole long description, a chronology of this his struggle against this sickness, um, practicing techniques of meditation he learned from a hermit. The, the, the sickness 
it seems ranged from his from age 25 to his early 30s in any event the translator continues Hakuin lived at the hut on Mount Iwataki for well over a year, pushing himself mercilessly, fasting and going without sleep for days at a time, determined not to let up in his efforts until he achieved a further breakthrough, even if it cost him his life. <clears throat> now, appreciate, this is after two enlightenment experiences. The first one with the temple bell, and the the second, uh, where he landed in the in the in the dirt uh, with the uh, the hands of this old woman and her broom. It's uh, it's there are others. There are predecessors of his in China. In Japan, who a few who may have had this kind of um, unrelenting faith—that's what—that's what drives us to such exertion—is faith that they will yield a deeper realization. He may have had others before him, but it's exceedingly rare to read of someone after two not just getting through your koan, but real, true enlightenment experiences driving him the way him, himself the way he did. You see why Hakuin has, for centuries now, has been revered in Zen. And these each 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 uh, segment of this short biography is expanded on uh, in in Hakuin's own words, his autobiography. But we don't have time for that. <clears throat> it says he would have continued indefinitely what he calls he would have continued indefinitely what he calls the pleasures of this austere existence had it not been for the unexpected arrival of a family servant who brought him the news that his father was dangerously ill and uh, pleaded with Hakuin to, to go home. And uh, Hakuin saw that this is what he needed to do. This is filial piety. And uh, he did go home. <clears throat> and he also began attracting... Uh, other monks uh, who wanted to train under him. Well, when he got back to his hometown, or right next to his hometown, um, he faced a lot of of uh, hardship. Uh, he found that the, um, the the temple he stayed at originally before all these enlightenment experiences, that it had uh, deteriorated in an almost indescribable state of disrepair. <clears throat> and 
and then there's a <laughs> there's a quite a uh, description here. I'm switching to another book about Hakuin. This is uh, also translated by Norman Waddell. It's called The Essential Teachings of Zen Master Hakuin. Here's Herr Hakuin's own words. Shoinji, that was the, his original little temple, had fallen into an almost indescribable state of ruin. Stars shone through the roof at night. The floors were constantly saturated by rain and dew. It was necessary for the master to wear a... Uh, no, this couldn't have been his own words. Um, one of his biographers. It was necessary for the master to wear a straw raincoat as he... Who, who among us has ever worn a straw raincoat as he moved about the temple attending to his duties? He needed sandals inside the main hall. This wearing footwear indoors would be unheard of when he went there to conduct ceremonies. Temple assets had passed into the hands of creditors. The temple equipment had all been pawned. About the only thing worth noting around here, he said, is the moonlight and the sound of the wind. This is what's not going to happen to Chapin Mill or Arnold Park. That is, with the support of the Sangha. The biographer, the, the translator continues, Hakuin resided at this ramshackle old temple amid great difficulty and privation through his 30s and on into his early 40s. An old family servant gathered wood for fuel, foraged for vegetables, and managed to produce the two daily meals. Two, notice. A monk who showed up helped supply the kitchen by making daily begging expeditions. Provisions were always meager, and the, and the temple cook was usually forced to use spoiled or maggot-ridden food that had been rescued from the garbage the villagers were about to throw out. The uh, translator continues saying that several anecdotes in, the bio in Hakuin's biography give us an idea of the rigors of Hakuin's spare, simple life at his temple during this period. Now get a load of this. When the sun went down, he would climb inside a derelict old palanquin. A palanquin is one of these little uh, structures that they would carry... Uh, important people, aristocrats, uh, with the four poles. Uh, he would, he would um, climb inside some broken-down old palaquin and seat himself on a cushion he had placed on the floorboard. One of the young boys at the temple would come wrap his body in a futon 
and cinch him tightly into this position with a rope. There he would remain, quote, like a painting of Bodhidharma, until the boy came and untied him the following day. A special room was built behind his living quarters where he could go and devote himself quietly to Zazen. The religious quest that had been the single focus of his life for more than a quarter century finally came to an end one night when he was 41. He was in his chambers at his temple reading the Lotus Sutra, the very same chapter, the one on parables, he had dismissed years before as a mere collection of simple tales about cause and effect. We read that yesterday. As Hakuin read, the sound of a cricket churring at the foundation stones of the temple reached his ears. At that instant, he crossed the threshold into great enlightenment. The accumulated doubts and uncertainties of forty years suddenly ceased to exist. The reasons why the Lotus Sutra was regarded as supreme among all the Buddha's teachings was revealed to him, quote, with blinding clarity. He found teardrops, quote, cascading down his face like strings of beads. They poured out like beans from a ruptured sack. From that time forth, wrote Torre, the master lived in a state of great emancipation. The enlightening activity of the Buddhas was now his, without any lack whatever, enabling him to speak with the same tongue and from the same lips as all the Buddhas before him. So that is considered his final great enlightenment. He's reported to have had many lesser enlightenment experiences than those, the three that we just mentioned. And then he took it upon himself from the, for the rest of his life uh, to single-minded devotion uh, to the task of reforming uh, Zen and reinvigorating the Zen school. Torre's biography uh, records the, the scores of journeys he made around the country, some of them of many days' duration, in answer to endless requests for teaching and lectures, the writings he published, the stories of encounters and confrontations he had with students and other priests. In 1732, Six years after his final enlightenment, more than 20 monks were residing and training at Shoinji, his temple. Only 20. And then it goes on to talk about over the next few years, he was lecturing there on uh, the Blue Cliff Record. Um, I'm going to just, just sort of skate over this uh, just too much detail. 
uh, it, remember this temple of Hakuin's is a very small one, and uh, it says here there was no way it could house or provide for the growing numbers that began coming to the temple. And the monks were obliged to fend pretty much for themselves. They found lodgings as best they could in the countryside around the temple. They transformed the surrounding woods and hills into a great center of Dharma practice. Hakuin advised them to form into groups of three. They were told to go out and find deserted halls, shrine buildings, or vacant houses that weren't being used and shut themselves up inside. There they would be able to devote themselves to undisturbed sessions of Zazen. The translator continues, It was unprecedented. A religious center that had risen up spontaneously, created by the students themselves, who had come for purely religious motives, drawn there in hopes of receiving instructions from Master Hakuin. And here, uh, here's a description that uh, Hakuin's, in Hakuin's words that uh, I can't resist reading again his his extraordinary creati- creativity in writing. Uh, here he gives Hakuin gives some idea of the difficulties these students faced when they got there. Students gladly endured the poisonous slobber the master spewed at them. They welcomed the stinging blows from his stick. The thought of leaving never even entered their minds. Some stayed for ten, even twenty years, totally indifferent to the possibility they might have to lay down their lives at Shoinji and become dust under the temple pines. Hunger awaited them in the morning. Freezing cold lurked for them at night. They sustained themselves on greens and wheat chaff. Their ears were assaulted by the master's deafening shouts and abuse. Their bones were hammered by furious blows from his fists and stick. What they saw furled their foreheads in disbelief. What they heard bathed their bodies in cold sweat. When they first arrived at Shoenji, they possessed the beauty of a Sung Yu or Ho Yen, obviously famous beauties, legendary beauties, their complexions glowing with radiant health. But before long, they were as thin and haggard as so-and-so and so-and-so, their pallid skin drawn taut over their bony cheeks. Would a single one of these monks have remained at Shoenji even a moment if he had not been totally dedicated to his quest, grudging neither his health nor life itself. We, we uh, read yesterday, um, the, the, the translator here acknowledging that Hakuin was given to exaggeration. And uh, so we hear this too, this account we can take with a grain of salt, but oh, the writing live words, as we say in Zen. Just some little bits before we end this biography. 
Uh, Hakuin seems for most of his career to have steered clear of the great monastery complex of Kyoto, not only during his period of pilgrimage, but also later as a teacher when he lectured at temples in provinces around the capital. Tokyo was the capital in those days. Then he became, his health uh, began to fail. Uh, here's a little nugget. Um, the, the translator here is talking about when he was 74, how, uh, how confident he now felt in the depth and maturity of his understanding. And these are Hakuin's words. Whatever I hold up to elucidate for you, even if it is only a shard or a pebble, is transformed into a piece of purest gold. Where I am now, even when I'm sitting and joking and chatting informally with people, I'm turning the great Dharma wheel. And so we chant, and we recite the Hakuin chant where he says, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. Total integration. Some other source I came across uh, yesterday or today said that in his later years, in his, he would give Teisho's about anything that struck his fancy. He understood that Really, it's all the Dharma. It's all the Dharma. Politics, health, um, most uh, common kind of things about human beings and their interacting with one another. It's all the Dharma. He was then uh, forced to take to his sickbed with an ailment that his physician diagnosed as too many sugared sweets. Let that be a warning to those of you who like sweets. Said he with, with a wry, self-mocking smile. And uh, the, the translator suggested it could have been an attack of diabetes Oh yeah, here's where he says uh, two of his um, lectures that he was invited to give. Uh, he talked on whatever moved his fancy. And then finally, we all know the finale to this. On the 6th of the 12th month, a freak storm swept the area, sending bolts of lightning crashing violently to earth. The next day, the physician came to examine the master's pulses. What do you think, the master asked. Nothing out of the ordinary, he replied. <laughs> I've heard many times that even today, physicians in Japan will often not 
tell their patients that they have cancer. Nothing out of the ordinary, the physician replied. Anyway, skipping down, um, on the tenth day, the master called his disciple to his sickbed and entrusted him with his personal affairs after his death. At daybreak the following day, the master was sleeping very peacefully, lying on his right side. He made a single loud groan and then passed away. Let's just, as one final comment, Hakuan never received, in his lifetime, he never received Dharma transmission. He never received Dharma transmission. He is revered uh, in Japan as among the greatest masters ever to live there. And, and he was posthumously given Dharma succession the way, you know, the, the Indian Buddhist masters became part of the lineage. But it's, it is worth noting, especially for people who make formal Dharma transmission the be-all and the end-all, uh, here is, well, here's a very different story. Our time is up. We'll stop now and recite the Four of Vows. <laughs> 